So Jesus tells the story of a young man who asks for his share of the inheritance. And as Hannah explained to us last week, this was as if he said to his father, you are dead to me. But we could even go further and say, it was as if he said to his dad, dad, I wish you were dead. And that was highly insulting in the culture of the day. In fact, it's highly insulting in any culture. And so he goes off and he spends the money in loose living and the money runs out and he finds himself with nothing. He's far from home and he ends up feeding pigs for somebody, unclean animals for Jews, with no hope even of sharing their food. No one's giving him anything. And this kind of softens him up. It brings him back to his senses and he thinks, wait a minute, the servants in my dad's house, at least they have food. I'll go home, I'll acknowledge my wrongdoing and I'll ask dad to hire me as a hired servant. And there are a couple of things in his awakening um, that lie at the heart of the story. The first one is the son's awareness that he has forfeited his status as a son. And then secondly, there's a hint that he knows his father and he has an awareness of his father's character. And that's gonna be important for us as we consider the older son. So the younger son sets off in the direction of home. It's a long walk. You know, if it was in Midian or Syria, you know, it might have been a two-week walk on an empty stomach. Um, he has a lot of time to meditate on his situation and to realize what he's done. I mean, and we pretty much know the rest of the story. As he approaches home, his father's already looking out for him. He runs out and embraces him. And the son has the opportunity to confess his sin. He says, Dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. But he doesn't actually get a chance to say the rest of what he wanted to say, i.e., make me one of your servants. Because the father immediately puts a robe on him and a ring on his finger. And these are symbols of family status and authority. And we could even say these are symbols of royal authority. And he orders the fatted calf to be slaughtered and prepared and for a party to begin. And you know what? The younger son accepts this. He goes in and starts partying with his father. And then the story pans to the older son who's coming in from working in the field. And he hears the sound of celebration and he asks the servant what is happening. And the servant says, your brother has come home and your father killed the fatted calf to celebrate. And the older son becomes angry and he refuses to go into the party. So the father comes out and implores him to come in. And the older son complains, he says, all these years I've served you and have never disobeyed you and never once did I have a party. But when this son of yours came home who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father says, Son, you were always with me, and everything that I have is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, because your brother was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. And at this point in the story, and at this point, the story is left hanging. We don't know how it ends, because Jesus is at this point, he's hitting the ball back to the Pharisees and the scribes. And the implicit question is left hanging in the air, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to come into the party and celebrate God's grace and goodness to sinners? Or are you going to stay outside in the outer darkness with the elder son, nursing your anger and resentment forever?
Okay, so the oldest son is very angry. And we need to ask, why is he angry? And there's a number of reasons why he's angry. He's angry because his father has so readily forgiven his brother. But why would that make him angry? Surely that would be a source of joy to him, right? Now, the reason it isn't a source of joy to him is that his father's being so ready to forgive his brother so readily and lavishly, it strikes at the heart of his worldview, or we could say his religion. And I say religion because remember, Jesus in this parable is speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. It's all about religion. It's all about faith and belief, and it's all about God. So there's something about the father's forgiveness and love and joy that offends the older son, even to the point where the older son feels cheated. And if this story is about the grace of God to sinners, which it is, the elder son has a problem with God's grace. Now, why would anybody have a problem with God's grace? That's crazy, right? That's the most ridiculous thing we've ever heard. Well, actually, no. The reason that God's grace or the father's grace in the story is offensive to the elder son is that he does not rely on it. In fact, he doesn't believe that he has any need of it at all, and he's never experienced it. To him, God's grace seems unfair, unjust, wasteful, because it undercuts who he believes he is. Why is this? So the scribes and the Pharisees believed that their relationship with God depended on their performance of religious duties, and they were very good at this, and they were very observant. Their observance of all the little rules and regulations put them in a position of superiority to others who were less observant. So we might say that they thought that their observances put money in the bank. They had a healthy bank balance, or so they thought. In fact, they thought they were quite wealthy. They knew that they were in the black at the bank because they looked at others who were living differently and they knew that they were better than them. So that they concluded as a result that they were closer to God. But this is not how God's kingdom works. Now, a few weeks ago, I had to preach in the first service on Luke 17 on the parable of the unworthy servant. And in that parable, Jesus says, there's no master who will reward his servant for doing what he's supposed to do. And at the end of a long, hard day, the servant has to come in from the field and even then get his master's dinner ready and wait on him and before he can eat and rest himself. And at the end, Jesus says he's not a worthy servant just because he did his duty. And that parable is designed to show us that there's nothing that we can do to put God in our debt. All have sinned and fall short of the, short of the glory of God is what Romans 3 says. Which means that actually we're all in the red with regard to God. And this is why every single one of us needs God's grace. Now, the good news is that the Father, Father God and the Father in the story, is delighted to give us and lavish his grace upon us. God overlooks our debt to him because Jesus has paid it. Now, Jesus is the true worthy servant. And when we believe and we're baptized, when we believe in him and we're baptized, we acquire the status as a worthy servant. And we could say, in relation to this story, that Jesus gives us that ring and that robe of sonship 
when we don't deserve it, just as the father does to the younger son in the story. But we can't get that status by following the rules or by doing stuff for God. We can't do anything for God that will put God in our debt. Now, when we become believers, we can partner with God and we can do things that further his kingdom. But there's nothing we can do for God that makes God owe us. I once, um, I used to know a, a leader in missions. Um, he had been involved in a quite an exciting movement in the Muslim world. Um, and then his third son was born and his so, third son was born with a condition um, which meant that he, was, he had basically no immune system. And, you know, it was a very, very, it was a big crisis for him. And his rationale was, Lord, how could you do that to me after everything I've done for you? And sad to say, that man ended up divorcing his wife and marrying somebody else. Um, and he really just couldn't get over the fact that he felt that God owed him. So, this is the position of the elder son. The elder son believed that his father was actually in his debt because of his work. So we have to, in order to see that, we have to look at what he says. He says, look, all these years I have served you and I have never disobeyed you. And moreover, you have never paid me, not even one measly goat. Therefore, you know, what is unsaid is, you owe me, dad. You paid my brother. You didn't pay me, but you paid my brother, and he wasted it on immorality. And now, you're even giving him more. So this undercuts the elder son's complete identity and reason for being. Now, it isn't that he doesn't understand his father's love and grace. Actually, he does understand them. Because he says, your son wasted your money on prostitutes, and you have killed the fatted calf for him. So he does understand grace. He gets it completely, but he hates it because it makes him feel worthless. Um, I was given, uh, I was talking to somebody the other day who teaches preaching. I was asking some advice. And um, this brother gave me a wonderful analogy of, of, of the elder son's analogy, uh, thinking in this parable. So the elder son is possibly like somebody in... Um, 1999 or 2000 or whenever it was, someone in France or Germany or Spain who's uh, got a big box of pesos or French francs or Deutschmarks and, um, or whatever, and, um, and they missed the deadline to exchange them for euros. Um, and they go to the bank, but alas, you know, they're too late. And all that money and wealth that they thought they had is now utterly worthless. Now this is how the elder son feels. This is what the father's grace does to the elder son. He is like the, he's like the scribes and the Pharisees who think they have money in the bank with God. But they don't because it is impossible for God to owe us anything. And on the contrary, whether we're a Christian or not a Christian, saved or unsaved, every single person owes God everything because he's the author of life. And this is what the grace of God does to the scribes and the Pharisees. It says to them, the things that you took pride in doing are worthless. And because they invested their identity in those works, therefore they feel worthless in the face of God's grace to sinners. Now, it wasn't, 
It wasn't that it was wrong for them to do those works. That's not the point. Obeying God's rules is always a good idea. But it all depends on our understanding of what we think they're for. Obeying God's law and his rules makes the world a better place. And this is what Paul says in 1 Timothy when he says that the law is good if we, if we use it lawfully. But obeying God's law and his rules never places God in our debt. It doesn't save us. And if, if, we, if we take that approach to God's rules, then we're misusing them. Okay, and, and actually what we do is we make it about ourselves. We make it about ourselves and our own ability to keep God's rules. And actually, we can see this self-focus with the elder son. Because when the father comes out and, and begs his son to come into the party, what does the elder son do? He immediately starts talking about himself and everything he has done for his father. The elder son's identity is bound up completely with the fulfillment of his duty rather than on enjoying life with his father. And the scribes and the Pharisees are the same. Their identity was invested in being the ones who obeyed God. Not on enjoying God, but in contrasting themselves to others they considered to be less committed than they were. Now, when we are free from our need to perform for God, we can focus on God and we can rejoice in his grace because we're no longer the center And this is very liberating. It puts us in the position where we can do things and we can do works, but these now are focused on advancing or extending God's kingdom. But if we do them because we think that by doing them we get acceptance or favor with God, then actually we're doing them for ourselves. But when we know that God, when we know already that God has already accepted us, it liberates us to do things um, and to bless others, um, knowing that he's going to bless others through us. So actually the consequence of focusing on himself in this conversation is that the elder son, and we start to get into the more difficult bit of the parable now, the elder son actually cuts himself off from the father. Just as, so just as the younger, said, the younger son had said, Dad, in effect, I wish you were dead or you're dead to me, the elder son is also renouncing his father in this because instead of saying, I wish you were dead, he's, he's actually even worse than the younger son because he's saying effectively, you were never my father. And he does this in two ways. First of all, he sees himself as a slave. When he says to the father, all these years I have served you, the word in the Greek there that is translated served actually means to to have slaved or to be a slave in the sense of having nothing. Now the whole parable is about sonship and two sons. But in the end, the elder son says to his dad, I'm a slave. The father has never treated him as a slave and yet he sees himself as a slave. Secondly, he refers to his brother as this son of yours. And he does this in disgust and as a sarcastic attempt to distance himself from his brother. But actually, possibly unwittingly, what he actually does is he cuts himself off from his father. His father has just reinstated his brother as a son. The father says, your brother was dead and now he's alive. And he's put these symbols of sonship on him a robe and a ring. And so the younger son 
who wasn't a son, is now a son again. But the elder son calls him the son of yours, which means, in effect, what he's actually saying to his father is, I'm not your son, but he is. And, you know, this for me is the most heartbreaking part of the story. So the scribes and the Pharisees have not only got it wrong about who God is, they've actually rejected him as well because in reality their faith is in themselves. And we might even go further. I know this is very black and white, but I feel this is how God has led me to interpret this. But we might say that the true object of their worship is actually themselves because their hope and their trust is in their own ability to please God. Now, another angle on the elder son's relationship with his father is seen in how he is angered by the way the younger son just accepts the father's forgiveness and restoration. Now, we saw at the beginning that the younger son, he doesn't get a chance to sort of ask for a job from his father. The ring's already on his finger, and he's wearing a robe. He's a son again. And actually, it would be ridiculous to contradict the father at this point. Why is the younger son so quick to, be, to, be, to accept being reinstated as a son? And I want to suggest it's because he knows his father. He knows his father, which means he knows the love of the father. And he knows that the love of the father is not based on his good behavior or his work. The younger son knows that the fa his father loves him with agape love. That is, that's the Greek word for Love that is unmerited and unmotivated. It is a free gift given to people who do not deserve it and cannot earn it. And another way of saying, another way of describing that might be the father loves with that kind of love because he, he loves loving with that kind of love. That's just who he is. And the, un, the younger son, he knows this. Actually, he's behaved very badly, but he knows this. But, the, but for the older son... This is completely outside his belief system and his experience. So the way the younger son accepts the father's love and forgiveness and grace exposes him and it angers him even more. I mean, in his eyes, the younger son ought at least have the decency to go around with a long face for a couple of weeks, right? In an appropriate show of chagrin and humility and sorrow. And then maybe after a couple of weeks, sort of, okay, I can behave as a son again now. But no, that's not what happens. The younger son instantly accepts the father's forgiveness and joy, and he, and he starts celebrating with the father. So as I said, the only way to really understand this is by understanding or by realizing that the younger son knew his father, and he knew that this was for real. And, and, and if we want to go even further, we might say that the younger son, he understood that he could not resist the father's love. And he could not escape from it. And so he got with the program and he accepted it. And he accepted his restoration, not with an appropriate show of humility and sorrow and with a long face, but by instantly forgetting his sin and throwing himself into the celebration. So all this tells us that the elder son's reaction shows that, in fact, he does not know his father. And... At the end of the parable, it's actually as if they're complete strangers to one another. The father says, you have always been with me and all that, I, all that is mine is yours. But this is 
complete news to the elder son. It's not how he sees things, how he sees things. He sees himself as a slave in relation to his father, owning nothing, working hard for nothing, not enjoying fellowship with his father. And yet all the while, he's resentfully adding up what he thinks his father owes him in his mind. So the only conclusion I can come to at the end of this parable is that the younger son is the true son of the father. Not because of his behavior, but because he receives the father's grace. And because he acknowledges that his relationship to his father does not depend on his good behavior, but rather is based on the father's completely freely given love. So the older son is not the true son of the father. He's dutifully obeyed his father, but in doing so, he's actually rejected him. Rejected what the father wants him to be and to experience. And the end of the parable is left hanging because it is up to the scribes and the Pharisees to make the next move. Are they going to come into the party with the great unwashed crowds and enjoy and celebrate the grace of God freely given to sinners? This is hard for them to do because to do so will require them to admit that they need the grace of God. And to admit that they need the grace of God will require them to admit further that they are no better and possibly even worse than the tax collectors and the sinners they look down on. So are they going to do it? We don't know the end of the story. We don't know whether the eldest son came into the party or not. But we do know what happened to many of the scribes and the Pharisees. Many of them shouted out that Jesus should be put to death. So what are we going to do? This is also a question for us. Where have we invested our identity? Is it in our own performance for God and in being better than those that live sinful lives? Or is it as the starting point for our identity be the freely and lavishly given grace and mercy of God that we do not deserve?